actually what we need is not necessarily economic diversification. We need economic transformation, the very way that we think about our economies, the very way that we think about what our economies stand for and what our economies based on means that transformation. Hi there, and welcome to Voices from the Institute for Human Rights and Business, also known as IHRB. I am Deborah Sago, and in this podcast, you will hear from people working to make respect for human rights part of everyday business. You've just heard from Tariq Al-Olaymi, the Managing Director of 3BN Associates. Tariq is a thought leader in sustainable development who often speaks about the importance of marrying together the needs of people and planet. Tariq is based in Bahrain, which is one of the six GCC, also known as Gulf Cooperation Council countries. GCC countries are all facing the same set of challenges when it comes to balancing the needs for urgent climate action with economic growth. Let's hear from my colleague Tamara Jaburi from IHRB's Gulf Sustain team. Tamara, you spoke to Tariq about this. Can you give us some context on why countries like Bahrain are having to diversify their economies? Absolutely. This region of the world has really been traditionally very heavily focused on oil and gas revenues as the kind of primary source of their GDP. At the same time, you're seeing this area very disproportionately affected by the effects of climate change. So this summer, for example, temperatures of 50 degrees and above have become very common across the GCC. So you're seeing these countries really recognizing the need to push for sustainable development and diversify their sources of income away from just oil and gas or fossil fuel-based industries. So you're seeing huge investments, for example, in areas like tourism and tech innovation. And at the same time, a push for a green transition that takes into account the social, environmental and economic progress and also looks into ways in which all of these three areas can be progressed in tandem with one another. Why is it important to balance the scale of this change with the needs and rights of workers? I think the first and probably one of the most important points to take into consideration when we're talking about this kind of economic diversification that we're seeing happen in the GCC is that the targets they set out in their national strategies are hugely ambitious. It will require buy-in from all members of society, from all kinds of stakeholders. For example, bringing in youth is a very important element because they make up such a big proportion of the society in the GCC. Another really important group is the workforce. They're the people responsible for executing much of this change. They're also often the most vulnerable to the impact of climate change that we're seeing on a day-to-day, especially those workers in industries like agriculture and construction who are primarily working outdoors. There are opportunities as well as challenges here, aren't there? My conversation with Tarek was a very eye-opening one because he was able to paint a really interesting holistic picture about how to effectively manage this change. One of the areas I was really interested in was the role of the finance industry, because he mentioned that as one of the opportunities. Executing these economic diversification plans is really heavily reliant on steady investment flows from within the country, as well as from foreign direct investment, but mostly from sovereign wealth funds. We're seeing huge investments from within the region to fund innovation, to boost tourism, to accelerate development at really an unparalleled pace. So it's interesting to me to explore how this funding capability can be used to incentivize action in the private sector, across civil society, and how it can be used for the people who hold the purse strings to really further the social agenda and include the welfare of all workers in this transition. Thanks, Tamara. Now, let's hear from Tariq, who sets out the scale of the change that's needed. We cannot continue 
with fossil fuel infrastructure, investing in fossil fuel infrastructure and industries in the very long term, as well as ensuring workers' welfare, citizen welfare, quality jobs, and a health and safety environment. We know that in the long term, those two cannot coincide. It's something that's been recognized by all of the regional governments who have signed to the Paris Agreement and beyond. We know that the health of our planet and the dignity of workers are inextricably linked, and those are both for uh, what some may call foreign workers, some may call migrant workers, as well as workers who are, who are nationals and citizens. We face the same types of impacts, it's just different degrees and aspects of those impacts. And we know at some point, we need to make a just and equitable transition to a net zero carbon economy. We know at some point, uh, we must make a transition to an economy that's based on decent work, on quality jobs. Uh, we know at some point, we need to transition to not only just in the region, but globally, to a non-extractive economy. And from the level of climate impacts, we know that this is required because we need to provide conditions for workers of all kinds, reducing their risks to health, reducing their risks with regards to safety, safeguarding productivity as well. We know that we need to make this transition because it's the only transition that really ensures decent wages in the long term. We know it's a transition we need to make because our entire infrastructure from cities to built environment is dependent on it. And the push and pull and the polarity, I think, is largely around time frame and timelines. Uh, we know we eventually need to do it. But the push and pull is also with where the GCC sees itself in the larger political dynamics of the climate crisis and to what extent we are responsible, to what extent we need to make particular transitions today, and then to what extent that actually that transition needs to be led by other actors in different parts of the supply chain. And we need to either follow or that we need to be leading in, a, in another direction focused on, on resilience. And you're right to call it the polarity, and it's a polarity that we find ourselves uh, stepping into uh, increasingly more day to day. It is a very much a recognized need, as you say. And a lot of the timelines in the GCC, when we talk about progress that's happening in the GCC today, you can't talk about it without mentioning the economic diversification plan. So we have very clear kind of blueprints, 2030, 2035, of how this is going to happen. But often we use the term economic diversification plans and green transition plans, you know, interchangeably. How much do you see that these plans do have green transition plans embedded in them? I'll tell you first my, my definition of what the actual green, uh, I think the green transition is, because it's always an interesting one. And I agree with you that economic diversification doesn't always lead to green transition. And that's not always something that's, that's meant, because we can still diversify economically, still keeping to a growth-centered or extractive sense of what an economy means. Now, we know that at present, we are an extractive economic model. It's not just the Gulf. It's not just the MENA region. It is globally. We know that it's extractive because globally, it is extractive environmentally. We see the biodiversity collapse I've seen in the GCC since I was born. Almost 70% of nature be destroyed. So we know it's extractive on that front. We know that it is extractive economically because the GCC is no different from the rest of the world where most of the wealth is concentrated in the top 5% of people. And we know that it's extractive socially because we see from workers' rights and labor rights and social rights be something that actually needs to be far more upheld and kept. And when I look at it from that lens and that framework, 
economic diversification doesn't always take into consideration these different aspects. Doesn't always take into consideration a responsible transition, a responsible diversification. And actually what we need is not necessarily economic diversification. We need economic transformation, the very way that we think about our economies, the very way that we think about what our economies stand for and what our economies based on needs that transformation. Now, in some of those plans, there are glimpses of that. There are glimpses of how we renegotiate our relationship with biodiversity and nature restoration. There are glimpses of, you know, what does it mean to make every single citizen, every single resident in the Gulf resilient to climate impacts. There are glimpses of what does it mean to transition our infrastructure so it's resilient to to heat and to preserve our, our food systems, particularly in our climates. There are glimpses of that, but I think our challenge is turning those individual interventions, these very far grandiose visions on some of these very specific metrics of food and water in the built environment into ones that are really systemic and transformational of how we see really our economic, uh, economic models. And I see that we're in that transition and it's that transition that's messy. It's a transition that's complex. It's a transition where everyone is making mistakes daily, but also that we can see some successes as well along the way. It's reassuring at least to hear that there is this initial step of recognizing the issue and really already we're feeling very much feeling the impacts and understanding how that fits into the wider picture. Moving with that small feeling of hope, I get the feeling when we're working on this, and obviously this is the narrative that I'm seeing in a lot of mainstream media, is in regards to the GCC specifically, this is a perfect time to address these things, especially like social development, social progress in line with environmental and economic. Because of many things, but one of them being the new role, let's say, that a lot of the GCC countries are beginning to play on the international stage, becoming bigger actors in diplomatic circles and things like that. Do you agree with that? Do you think that things like COP being held in the UAE, for example, provides us with a unique opportunity to address these things? I think it is definitely an opportunity, but it's also an opportunity that can be very easily wasted. And we've seen that in the past. You know, this is not the first time the Gulf has hosted a COP. It did happen in 2012 in Doha. And it was interesting to see the momentum, the movement towards that COP, which is very similar to what we see today where you suddenly had non-state actors caring about climate change. It suddenly became a board priority. It became a priority for organizations to mobilize it around in the form of, back in the time, new CSR strategies, initial sustainability strategies. Of course, this is pre the SDGs. There was communication on climate change from the government, the public sector to their citizens. This became a focus for real estate organizations who are starting to look at, you know, to what extent and levels are real estate being affected by sea level rise. There were considerations as well at the time for things such as heat stress, how can we protect workers against aspects around heat stress. And you had a whole ecosystem of businesses and civil society organizations starting just because of that COP. And then we saw six months after that COP, almost nothing existed as if that never happened. And it was a very strange place to be in because there was incredible momentum, partnerships, collaborations that started, but you saw that it could easily start and go on this upward slope and very easily be lost because the lack of momentum, lack of political priority, as well as businesses and private sectors not really then seeing the benefit and the value of taking action because there isn't this huge, large global event that's coming into town in the region. 
Now, of course, we're in a very different place than 2012, but I think some of the same risks still apply. And our challenge now as a region is beyond COP27 and COP28, how do we can continue this momentum on that scale? How can we get people to still care, still take action from the private sector, take this seriously when the, the show kind of leaves? For all of those reasons, it's an incredible opportunity that COP is happening in the Gulf. I only see it as a positive, but it's a positive that I know can be very short-lived unless the political leadership continues on this and unless these wider coalitions continue to invest post-COP28. The million-dollar question is, how do you think we can keep this political momentum alive when the lights go off? So I'll highlight maybe two best-case kind of practices that I see that are happening, and they come from the UN uh, High-Level Climate Champions, who uh, at the moment is uh, led by Her Excellency Razan Mbarak um, from the UAE. And their mandate is to engage non-state actors in particular on two different aspects, on uh, what they call the race to zero. So getting to net zero emissions and scaling that by 2030 and the latest 2050, as well as work around resilience, which is how we really build the resilience of 4 billion people on the planet. Now, in the work that I'm seeing that they're doing, it's very sector specific and it's getting non-state actors to commit, to be accountable and to follow very tangible metrics and initiatives. And it's the perfect platform that I see that is almost the anti-greenwashing. If you sign up, you're being held accountable. You're in a community that's going to support you collaboratively, that the policy and the regulatory environment that's there from industry players are set up to help to transform your sector and industry to enable you to reach those targets. A systemic and holistic approach. Now, it's a great example, but it's one that we don't see a lot of when it comes to the private sector and other kinds of private sector engagement in, in the region in particular. And I've seen a, not necessarily a hesitation of the private sector community to jump to these types of metrics and approaches, but I don't actually see a lot of awareness that these more tangible and deep metrics and platforms and frameworks exist. And I think there's a responsibility from the lens of those in my sector and my industry who are doing the work of sustainability transformation as, as well as yours to really educate, I think, the private sector and for them to take this longer term and more systemic approach to action. And then, of course, there's a political dialogue. And I think this is where it's interesting because, of course, the COPs have been the perfect platform to lead a high-level discussion on, on what this means. And on the state level, I think we're all asking what's going to come next. Is this gap that's going to be there after COP leaves be filled by the Middle East Green Initiative, which is led by the Saudi government? And there are some signs that says that that could be. But of course, this is not just a one country, one nation approach to dialogue. It needs to be systemic. Policy and regulation needs to come in many different forms and also needs to go on a, a ministerial level. You know, every minister of youth, every minister of industry, every minister of climate change across the region needs to be coordinating more closely. And I think that kind of regional collaboration, cooperation is something that we have to see to be able to really have an approach that's not based on economic diversification, but really economic transformation, one where climate and biodiversity is really embedded into how we're seeing the economies of the future. It's really interesting to hear you frame it as economic transformation instead of economic diversification. It feels much more reflective of what's really happening, where 
this is a transition that really impacts everybody and it can't just be government-led, but it has to really involve input from all facets of society, from all members of society. I'm really kind of interested to hear your take on sustainable finance, how this can be used as an instrument to propel this forward, and also how we can use finance as a way to incentivize businesses to really get behind this agenda. So when it comes to finance and sustainable finance, there is definitely a gap um, across the entire ecosystem. So we see that from the gaps in lack of funding for you know, climate startups and climate technologies on one side. Um, so that's in the form of digital technologies for adaptation that goes, so goes into investment into hard well, hardware and infrastructure and the investment in those when it comes to the specific types of cooling technologies that require in terms of investment when it comes to climate resilient agriculture and uh, food systems that are suitable for arid climates. There is also a lack of investment when it comes into how do you ensure large-scale industry funding and also government-backed and public sector-based funding for industries such as the real estate sector to completely transform from this model that's there at the moment to a more climate-adaptive, resilient infrastructure and ones that are also going to be protecting labor and worker rights across the board. When it comes to private sector organizations, the imperative is coming from the private sector to either fund themselves or it's either coming from industry. And whereas when we see globally, that kind of funding for an industry to transform itself is largely, largely has market signals that are sent out by the public sector and by government. And there's this interplay and this struggle. For some, some countries like Saudi Arabia, we have PIF who are making many investments, obviously on this front and where across their portfolio, they're doing a great job to start put that kind of investment, but it's a, it's a one-off what I see from the wider region. And we don't see a lot of innovation when it comes to sustainable finance, uh, when it comes to Islamic-backed instruments, models, and methods for really providing and looking at how do we put the market signals, the market support for the private sector to really make this kind of transition and this transformation. It's strange in many ways. I see it almost as we almost apply a social enterprise model to almost climate investment and climate finance, where we're expecting organizations to self-fund through their existing activities and services and really take that investment to refund and, and invest into particular sectors, which can work to an extent. But it really requires larger scale funding in, in the long run. And we, we do have that finance gap. And we are severely lacking from local to regional instruments on that basis. And then another thing is, I mean, I remember last time we spoke, you also mentioned the kind of new ESG metrics in the region. And again, I think that's a good kind of indirect push in the right direction. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about that and how you're seeing that impacting or being enforced in the region. Yeah, I mean, and I think also just to put the, the scale of the challenge in perspective. So in the lead up to COP27, governments in the MENA looked collectively on actually what our climate financing needs. And through the UN and the Arab League conducted a technical assessment of climate finance. So looking at what are the actual climate finance flows that are going into the region today, and actually what is it that we really need to scale up and meet our mitigation targets and our adaptation targets. And they found that at the moment, it's estimated that in the Arab world, there's anywhere between $5 billion to $7 billion a year that are coming in in terms of climate finance flows or climate-specific finance flows. Now, the actual total that was needed 
is somewhere along the lines between 430 billion to 480 billion. You can see that there's a, there's a massive gap. The private sector are simply not able to meet that gap within the region. That has been led and those kinds of studies have, that have been pushed have been done so on the basis of this is our negotiation position. This is also the type of support that we need from the global north kind of as well. And also to be very specific around where the private sector can and should invest and where they should be contributing to closing that finance gap. Now, what's been interesting in parallel is we have seen many Gulf-specific ESG frameworks being developed. And largely, I think that's been driven by a few things. One, it's to align with this finance gap. So it's to, you have a case where many of the, the bourses and the stock exchanges, whether it's the Abu Dhabi stock exchange, the Bay stock exchange, the Bahrain stock exchange, the Tadawal in, in Saudi Arabia and, and Zual in Kuwait, have their very specific ESG frameworks that have been developed uh, for these exchanges, for these listed companies that are not mandatory at the moment, but they're optional on the way to be mandatory and, and required. But it's a way for each of these platforms to say, these are the metrics that we're going to hold to our listed companies. Um, it's important for our listed companies to start to align so that when we start to align our ESG metrics and our reporting with our finance needs, we're set up for that, whether it's from those organizations funding on the basis of their ESG metrics and targets, this wider climate finance need uh, that we have in the Arab world, or whether it's vice versa, where we're getting investment into the region, into these companies, that they're aligned on international standards. And I've seen that's had a lot of benefits. It's had a lot of benefits when it's come to education. We've had a lot of organizations reach out to us for education on ESG, just because these uh, stock exchanges have now required them to do so. They now require boards of directors to be educated on what ESG is. And under that, it's uh, educating them on what climate impacts, climate finance are, what these, uh, what these governance metrics are, what the social requirements as well related to these metrics when it comes to worker rights and others. What's been very positive on that dimension. But it's also set up the infrastructure for actually starting to access these funds and also for these public-private partnerships to start to be established when it comes to climate-specific projects, whether it's on the euforestation of mangroves, whether it's on new green building standards, or whether it's upscaling of renewables uh, as well. So I think there's a level of application there. And I think each country will also have a very different type of social contract for how to engage with the private sector and the civil society sector what should be citizen-led versus what should be uh, public sector-led, where the public sector should simply be a regulator and the private sector and civil society as an operator, and vice versa. Just finally, before we, we close the interview, I, I just wanted to mention what role you think youth should play. I mean, you talk about the kind of social contract. How much do they need to be engaged? Often there's quite like a higher level of climate literacy among younger generations, but how can we really bring them into the fold? Uh, in terms of decision-making power specifically? Well, I think when I speak from a Gulf perspective, it's quite a unique one when it comes to young people. You're absolutely right. In terms of climate literacy, it is a climate literate community and demographic. We, all of the studies that have been done on climate change and education in the region will uplift that. Anecdotally, from the private sector perspective, when I hear you know, boards of directors wanting to take action on the environment or climate change and ask them why, it's often that my, my daughter and son, more often the daughter, 
will will be pushing will be pushing their mother or father to uh, to take more action. That they'll be asking at home, "What are you doing? The environment on climate change." So I do hear that a lot. But in the Gulf, very specifically, it's interesting because we already have ministers, you know, under the age of forty, ministers on the age of thirty-five that have been appointed to roles where they're leading on climate action when it comes to sustainable development, when it comes to agriculture. We already have that, and uh, and across government in very prominent positions, we are a region that have been putting increasingly young people into decision making roles and bodies in a way that I don't quite see in the U.S. and in Europe. Uh, so we're actually in a quite unique position. We also have a workforce that is now going to be increasingly young, and it's young people who are driving innovation, who are driving just transitions, who are often when we deal with ESG policies with private sector companies, it is people under the age of 35 that are most likely to be involved in leading that and spearheading that and to be forming part of the teams of implementation. So young people have a vital role to play. And I think that is a real reflection of how COP28 being framed as the most inclusive COP and the most inclusive for young people, I think is really a reflection of that approach across our society and across the region, which is something that has been happening, I think, quietly for the last few years, but we're now seeing more visibly when it comes to the, the international dimension being upholding into, into policy. I myself started out in the youth policy spaces. I started out in the youth climate movements in the Arab world and the youth environmental movements. And I've seen along with my colleagues, many of them uh, have now gone on to positions of prominence who are leading sectors, who are the ones who have been spearheading the first policies of their kind, whether it's related to coral conservation or mangrove conservation or others. It's really being led by people under 35, and I use that in the more generous, generous definition of youth. And then even more when it comes to under 40 of young leaders who are, who are doing that work or being industry stewards. Um, and I think when it comes to your question of investment as well, particularly when it comes to family foundations and family businesses that have these legacy foundations, who have these larger charity arms. It's this new generation of maybe the third generation or the fourth generation in, in some aspects. They're now wanting to transform their family assets, their family charity into investing into sustainable climate-focused initiatives and charitable giving and philanthropy. And it's young people really spearheading that in, in the region. And I think we'll see really the effect of that investment that's being done and that has been done over the last few years, more and more in, in the next five years when it comes to more ministers who are being placed in, the, in these positions or directors, board of directors, people sitting on advisory boards who are young people really taking the lead and spearheading this economic transformation. Great to end on a more positive note there, Tamara. What are the key things you would like us to take away from this episode? Yeah, I completely agree. It's so nice to see kind of a sense of hope in terms of how to get the youth involved and what their role can be. I think for me, one of the key takeaways is that sometimes we talk about these economic diversification plans like they're new, and it's not really the case. In some cases, these plans have been designed or have been in implementation for more than 10, almost 15 years. So it really is a constant process of reflection and keeping up to date with new trends, new social realities, more urgent climate needs. And I think also to really meaningfully and effectively manage this transition, it's going to take effort from every level of society. It's going to have to incorporate youth. 
It's going to have to incorporate businesses, governments, specialized agencies, the workforce. Everybody needs to have a seat at the table. Everybody needs to have a voice in these decision-making spaces from the planning and implementation stage. It cannot be that in retrospect, the workforce is incorporated. It has to be from now. Couldn't agree with you more there, Tamara. Thank you for listening to this episode of Voices, which is brought to you from the Institute for Human Rights and Business. Until next time, though, be sure to share and follow this podcast. That way you'll never miss an episode. If you would like to find out more about the work that we do at IHRB, then head to ihrb.org.